if you are regular here, you are aware, um, Matt Rawlings, usually, he's our lead pastor, usually is serving us. Um, his family, I think, is traveling this morning. They have had the flu all week, and they were supposed to be heading out yesterday. I believe they still did that for a week in Florida before starting up the new year. Um, you could pray with for them. Um, both as they recover, as well as the many folks who you see are not here this morning as flu travels around. Um, grateful for you being here. Um, grateful for those who are joining us by live stream as we give attention to God's Word this morning. As we turn the corner from 2019 to 2020, I want to reflect on the conquering king we've spent the majority of last year's messages studying in the book of Revelation as fuel for starting off this year. So normally when I speak, I'm often out of the book of James, taking a pause from that um, to just be able to reflect on some of the themes that we've been looking at this year with a particular application as we head into 2020. Imagine you were there that day, nearly 2,000 years ago, when the creator of the universe, the author of life, sought to comfort the grieving sister of the recently deceased Lazarus. Imagine you were there to hear him declare, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What must it have been like to move with them from the house to the grave, to the, smell the stench of death and decay as you approach and men move the stone out of the way, and to see this teacher and miracle worker weep with his friends? What would it have been like to hear him then declare, Lazarus, come forth? And then to see the man dead four days begin to move and to obey the command of his creator. What if you had been one of those who had wrapped his lifeless body for his burial and now are being told to help remove his grave clothes. Imagine the ecstatic joy you would observe at the reunion of friends and family as they have returned to them their once dead brother. In this life, it's hard to imagine people more overjoyed, a richer reunion than the restoration of one thought gone forever, now restored. But friends, if we think of this life only, then our vision is really too short-sighted. For Lazarus, he fell prey to death again. He's not still walking among us. The Scripture tells us of a greater resurrection than even what Lazarus experienced, one that awaits all those who believe in Christ Jesus 
as Savior and Lord. One of the most painful consequences of our sin and the effects of our sin on this world in which we dwell is that again and again and again and again we need to say goodbye. Either because of broken relationships that make us part ways or broken bodies that experience disease and death or just this broken world that we live in which requires us to separate and serve in different locations whether it's Anderson or Asheville or Africa. And it's, it's appropriate for us to grieve our goodbyes due to cancer or dementia, to distance or to differences. Because loss of relationship is real loss. And it's a reminder that it's not the way that things were meant to be. Sin and separation, death and decay were not part of Eden's aim. Grieving is appropriate Because these are intrusions into the very good world that God made. We see even the Savior himself weeping at Lazarus' grave. For believers, though, these intrusions, these interruptions and corruptions are never the end of the story. They are never the final word. We experience plenty of goodbyes, but goodbye never gets the last word. So when we grieve our losses, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Because Jesus came to remedy the brokenness of this life, the brokenness of this world, to defeat our greatest adversaries of sin, of sickness, of death, of separation. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. You can begin to open your Bibles there if you have them. The entire chapter examines resurrection. It's a lengthy chapter on Christ's resurrection and its significance for believers. Because of its length, we're only going to be looking at the last portion of the chapter. Now, Paul's objective here, as he talks about the resurrection, is a little different from the gospel writers who detail, who give in detail what really happened. That was their aim. And that's essential to Paul as well, but it's only part of what he wants to convey. He also has a significant focus on what it means, what resurrection, the resurrection of Christ produces for us. The effects of the resurrection are also very much in view as Paul goes through this chapter. His focus isn't just on the morning of the resurrection that we see in the Gospels, but it's also on the new day that this resurrection brings to all who are in Christ. And the new day it brings... Paul lets us know, actually has a lot to do with the final day. So, for instance, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by, man, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers, to the, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There's a very simple takeaway I want us to be convinced of as we look at the end of chapter 15 this morning. And that's for the believer... Death has no sting. As far as Christian doctrine goes, this isn't breaking any new ground. But functionally, for you and for me, I'm guessing that we struggle to lay hold of this reality day by day. After all, anxieties remain as we enter 2020. Lesser foes than death still intimidate us, don't they? Finances, grades, illness, relationships, they can all threaten to distract us, to take our eyes off Jesus, to be bigger in our eyes than they are in the eternal scheme of things. Now, as a church, we've just gone through dozens of sermons on how this whole thing shakes out. The Alpha, the Omega, the culmination of all of human history, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the dwelling place of God with man forevermore. This should be a source of confidence and great comfort for us. It should reorient us in the way that we think, not only about forever after, but about the here and now. But the reality is, too many times in Lest it's a felt need, we often fail to give forever a second thought. So I want us to slow down one more time as we turn the page to 2020. Please read with me. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 36 through 58. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it 
with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. For the believer, death has no sting. These verses proclaim that for those in Christ, we will share in His resurrection. Well, First, we need to ask the question, what does it mean to belong to Christ or to be in Christ? To be in Christ means that you are united with Him. You are joined to Him and aligned with what He has done. And this reality changes everything. There are things that, that are possible and realities for us because we are in Him that are not possible, that are not our reality apart from Him. Let me give a simple, very inadequate illustration. You and I were not born with the gift of flight. That's really important for you to know. If we go to a tall building in Greenville, and we go to the top, 
if you jump, what you will do will not be flying. It will be falling. It will end with a mess. In our natural state, we can't fly. But if we head over to GSP, and we get in one of the big aircraft that are there, within moments, assuming there's not a long delay, we can be at 35,000 feet above the surface of the earth, traveling 600 miles per hour. What is impossible for us on our own is quite amazingly not only possible, but an expected reality when we are in the 737. Being in Christ gives us access to realities that are not possible apart from Him. And we are united with Him when we trust in Him and in His sacrifice for our sin. Then we receive the gifts of forgiveness and eternal life, which He freely and generously offers to us because of what He has already done for us. Our union, ultimately, with Him means a laying down of our old life so that we can be raised up to new life in Him. Now, this is really important if you don't belong to Christ. You need to hear this this morning. Death for you is the most terrible of events. For believers, death has no sting. For unbelievers, though, death has only sting. Contrary to popular feel-goodism, we don't all go to heaven. Those who remain unwilling to align with Christ in this life will not be ushered into heaven or the Savior's embrace. Death apart from Jesus means judgment. With our last breath will come our last opportunity to turn to Him for salvation. When your heart stops beating, so will end God's mercy for those not in Him. He is patient, wanting that all might turn to Him. But when this life ends, so does the opportunity to give ourselves to Him. It will not mean in that moment annihilation or a ceasing to be but Scripture reveals it will then involve the active punishment, wrath from God Himself. Punishment for your lifelong insistence of running your life your way instead of yielding to Him and His good and loving Lordship over you. Flee to Christ this morning. He is your only hope of salvation. 
He is the only way to victory over death and hell. In Christ alone is death defanged. But in him, death has no sting. And he calls you, as long as it is called today, to come to him. Now, as Paul highlights kernels that must be sown, he's both saying that there is a continuity between our current and our forever bodies. It will still be us. We will be able to recognize one another. There there will be essential elements of us-ness that will carry over from this life to the next. And he's also saying that this body and calling it a kernel, it must die in order for our new bodies to be raised. Because these bodies are just the seeds, the bare kernels of what will be raised. Now, they don't compare with what is waiting for us. Just as the plant produced doesn't compare with the bare kernel. It contains the basic information, but the plant is so much greater than just the seed that is sown. If we're to look at it in terms of home makeovers, it's what we're going to receive is not just a fresh coat of paint and some new fixtures, but the extreme transformation that comes when The old house is torn down, and on the site, there's a whole new, completely transformed home built, completely updated, a better house than that was there before, while incorporating enough of the family's significance to immediately make it home. Now, as was mentioned This morning we've had a member just pass a week ago from this life to the next. And the plan for today's message was developed several weeks ago before Judy Easton's mom, Ray Burroughs, went to be with the Lord last weekend. But but I think the celebration of her life yesterday adds a particular sweetness to this topic this morning. Because that's so fresh for many, I want to reiterate that it's right to grieve, to miss our loved ones. It's not that we need to enjoy the goodbyes. They're painful. We miss those we love. They are reminders that sin and its effects are intruders which spoil what was created as very good. We just also need to remember that this isn't the end of the story. We need to remember that Ray isn't wishing that she were back here right now. She is in glory with Jesus, which is better by far. We don't feel sorry for her. 
We're thrilled for her. It's us that has experienced the loss. Loss of someone wonderful that we love. But it's not sinful to miss those that have gone ahead. We don't need to pretend that it doesn't hurt on this side of the curtain. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Judy sent an article she found helpful as she was processing her mom's decline that used an illustration from near the end of Tolkien's Return of the King on how perspective changes everything regarding death's approach. And at Pippin and Gandalf are, are barricaded in their chamber in the white city as death threatens at their door. And as the enemy threatens to break through, Pippin grieves in what I think is a very relatable way. He says, I didn't think it would end this way. Gandalf looked at him curiously said, end? No. The journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain cloud of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass and then you see it. What, Gandalf? See what? White shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, that isn't so bad. No. No, it isn't, he says. And I want to say, because I think this can be a point of confusion at times as well, when it comes to our own death, because eternity with Jesus is better by far, it is totally appropriate to long to be with him. We should desire and anticipate and look forward to, especially when we're aware of the brokenness of this life, of our present bodies, of our present experiences and disappointments. It's legitimate. It's good to anticipate and to long what will be perfected and completed forever. But, I also don't want us to have a a pseudo-spiritual eagerness to get there when it's not yet our time. I don't think we need to pretend. Because death has no sting, we need not fear it. We should not fear it. But it's legitimate to be happy if our homecoming is not quite yet. And even desire more fruitfulness, faithfulness, and time to be useful until the time that is our time. I pray God gives me more decades to be able to serve my family, to point them to Jesus. God willing to be able to do that alongside you. The purpose we desire more life shouldn't be to exhaust our bucket list, but 
as Paul highlights in Philippians 1, for the, per- for the progress and, and joy of those around us. It's okay that we're here as long as God has us here to be all here. Be aware that he has us here for a reason, to serve and to build, to bring joy and edification and strengthening to those around us. The difference in the quick illustration between Gandalf and Pippin was that Gandalf knew there was more to the story. And that helped him make sense of his fear, his disappointment, even his own death, by remembering that there were more pages yet to come. He, unlike Pippin, knew that this was not the end. He knew that their story would end with real joy, despite what all seemed like bad closing in on them. The reality is, for most of us, somewhere along the line, life doesn't turn out the way we thought it would, the way we wish it would. Because there's plenty about this life that is meant to point us away from this life to the one that is to come. This world is broken, and much of what happens in it is a reflection of that brokenness. And if we live our lives focusing on what is broken, we're going to be disappointed and we'll face constant temptations to despair or bitterness. But friends, if we focus on what is to come, then a hope much greater than just relief from our circumstances can thrive and flourish even in the midst of difficulties and challenges and trials in the midst of the brokenness. Despair forgets that there are more pages. It gazes at the brief span of our lives and it complains that all should be fulfilled before the page is turned. It focuses on all our wishes that remain unsatisfied. But hope, hope knows that there's more to the story. Hope draws courage from gazing upon something grander than just right now. What we, like Pippin, often mistake as the end is merely leaving the preface for the first chapter. The real story is what is to come and what we will enjoy forever with our God. It's what David knew when he penned the 23rd Psalm and said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me because the shadow gets overshadowed by what comes next. It's what the saints in Hebrews 11 were holding on to in the midst of their trials, their tribulations, their persecutions. They embraced the reality that they were strangers and exiles on this earth, that their deaths were not the end. They were looking forward to a city whose architect and builder was God. Here, our story is always incomplete. 
We need to recognize that autism, that MS, that ALS, that Parkinson's, paralysis, rheumatoid arthritis, dementia, cancer, heart disease, stroke, financial distress, broken relationships, empty wombs, bare ring fingers, all these things only last for a page or two. The healing may not come in this life, but the healer does. The spouse may never come around the corner, but our heavenly spouse is mounting his chariot. The tears will not bring your loved one back, but the resurrection and the life is coming. There is more to the story. And friends, the story doesn't just continue. It gets better. So much better. Verse 42 says, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And I know what some of you are thinking. Aaron, have you already received your resurrection body? No. No, it's going to be even better than this. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Friends, after our resurrection, it will still be us. We're still going to have bodies. It's part of the experience that God has created for us. Except they're going to have upgraded features. Like not dying. That's, That's a really good one. It's not just about being made alive again, but receiving an altogether better experience, better bodies. When we are made like Him, raised imperishable in glory and in power, which can I say, I think it translates to more than just different bone structure or muscle tone, or whatever physical attributes are on your, your, um, your resolution list. I think even more than an absence of illness, or pain, and suffering, God is going to upgrade us. I have a picture of, of two devices. Do the picture... Both are phones and can make calls and even texts. At least the one on the left could at one time. It's been in our toy bin for probably 10 years. But upgrading from one to the other means more than just a new battery or case. The smartphone also gives me the ability to take and store pictures, set reminders, 
organize my calendar, play music, send email, check weather, read books, watch videos, redeem coupons, play games, listen to podcasts, surf the web, shop, manage my finances, do my banking, track packages, track my exercise, book travel, and has more computing power than it took what took Apollo 11 to the moon 50 years ago. Yeah, they're both phones, but I don't want to go back to the old one. What upgrades are, are we talking about with our resurrection bodies? Scripture doesn't give us an exhaustive list. It's not explicit on all that it means to transition from perishable to imperishable, dishonor to glory, weakness to power, natural to spiritual. But we can take some educated guesses from what we see in Scripture. Jesus and his resurrected body, it was still physical. Thomas put his fingers in the holes, Jesus' hands inside. He could be touched. He ate a meal with his disciples. He had a real body. It was different. He appeared suddenly in the midst of the disciples in a locked upper room. He disappeared suddenly from the disciples he was with on the road to Emmaus. There were things this body could do seem a little different. What does it mean to be spiritual? It means to be like Christ. John said that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. And that certainly includes it. we won't sin anymore. That alone is incomprehensible. Because right now, it's part of our nature. And yet, that's part of what God has come to redeem and to eradicate. And no longer will that be what we are defined by. Not only will we not sin, but all the effects of sin upon our physical bodies. Defects and weaknesses and illness, death itself, will all be done away with. How wondrous that will be. But will there be even more? Jesus began His ministry proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom. And clearly different miracles and signs that he did were meant to show us that he was divine, that he was from God. But much of his life, his obedience, his victory over temptation in the wilderness, these things were meant to show us who we were supposed to be. As the second Adam, he revealed what man was created to be in perfect relationship with God. His teaching centered around revealing God to us and how we were meant to relate with God and one another. 
He wasn't just God in flesh. He was the ultimate human. He was the best of what we were created to be. I'm not building a doctrine here, but but could it be that some of the miracles and signs that he did weren't just declarations of divinity, but examples of what humanity was supposed to and one day will be. As those made in God's image, in submission to him, was our dominion over creation meant to empower us to talk with the animals or walk on water or tell storms to be still or the mountains to jump into the sea? Not to show off, but as earthly caretakers and representatives. Those who image God himself to the rest of his creation. His earthly ministry was a pulling back of the curtain on the kingdom of God. And he told his disciples they would do greater works than these. In John 14, 12. And the reality is, many great works have been done in his name. The lame have been healed. The dead have been raised. The gospel is being preached to the ends of the earth. Jesus calls us to be who we were designed to be, who he redeemed and empowered us to be. He calls us to that in this lifetime. So, when our relationship with him one day is no longer hindered by sin and fear and ignorance... I don't think that we will have fewer experiences with his power, miracles, signs, wonders, but I think there will be even more. We'll be relating with him in a whole new way. If our role in Eden, in God's very good creation before sin entered the world, included care, and tending and bringing order to that which he had made. Friends, I think we should ask, what makes us think we'll only be singing in the new and improved heavens and earth? Yes, I do think we'll sing. That's clear in the book of Revelation. We see singing. We see worship of our king. And I'm excited by the fact that it'll be with a much better voice than I have now. I'll know what it means to really sing like I'm supposed to. And with a few thousand years to practice, I might even learn what it means to move a little bit with a dance or to be able to pick up an instrument or two. That would be a miracle because that is totally foreign to my experience now. But friends, we won't have the limitations we have. We will have forever to grow in our ability and the ways in which we express our worship of him, our reflection of him. I don't think that harps and songs will be our only occupation. 
I think as God image bearers, we will have a myriad of things that he has for us to do. Enhanced abilities with which we'll be able to do them because they're ways that we reflect him. Now, the need won't be for healings or resurrections in that day. I'd like to think that that ruling over the new creation might be aided by some very practical supernatural abilities with which we show him off. Oh, for the day when even our bodies will reflect him clearly. But we can't just walk or drive or fly or pay our way to where we are going. It requires not only being united with Christ in spirit, but a bodily transformation as well, one that we can't undertake ourselves, not with any list of resolutions. Because as much as man strives for immortality, it is simply beyond our reach. But what is impossible for God, for man, is not even a barrier or a difficulty for God. It says in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised imperishable at his return. And those still alive will be transformed in a moment, clothed with immortality, power, and the glory of being like him because he has already paid the full price by his own broken body he purchased our eternal bodies with his shed blood he secured what we will enjoy forever with his own triumphant resurrection and his ascension 54 says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In the presence of Christ, once crucified, now resurrected and ascended, Proclaimed by God to be the first fruit of those raised imperishable, death has no victory. For those united with him, death will have no sting. What is the worst that this world can throw at us? What greater threat does it have than taking our breath or our blood from us? Threatening to destroy that which is only the temporal kernel that is going to be transformed anyways. This body is what must be sown in order for us to be raised to immortality and glory forever. Brothers and sisters, when death has no sting or victory against us, what shall we fear? The truth is, 
many things often still grip our hearts. Not because they're greater dangers than this one, but because we fail to apprehend and apply this truth to our lives, to our circumstances. I certainly include myself in this. I can be consumed with far lesser things because I lose sight of the big big picture and the fact that Christ has destroyed every enemy, including death. My concerns of finances, what people think of me, or my lack of progress in, in this struggle or that struggle, they gain a wonderful, needed perspective when I meditate on this truth. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us Let's not move past that too quickly. Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, 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 my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. How does Paul sum all of this up? What's the takeaway? Did you catch this? Paul doesn't say that that since Jesus is victorious, because we live forever, nothing here matters. Instead, how we live now matters. Because he's victorious. He conquers every foe. Every adversary that we toil against now will be defeated. It is laid at our feet because it is conquered by Him. There is no work that we do in His name today that will be in vain forever. Because He is victorious. Because He reigns. What happens after we die? Because of what he has secured for us, it should affect how we live now. Death itself has been defanged. So be steadfast. Be immovable. Be productive for the Lord. Because when death has no sting, no labor in him is in vain. He sees, he rewards, he is able to make every trouble and inconvenience in our pursuit of him worth it forever. So pick up your Bibles. 
Spend time with him. Serve those around us. Lay down our lives. Because none of it's in vain. It all matters. What we do in him, what we do for him. Oh, we'll see fruit eternally. Because he has won every victory. Every opponent has been defeated. Every adversary will fall. Your struggle is not eternal. Your struggle is not eternal. Your pain is not eternal. Your disappointment is not eternal. But your reward in Him will be. So abound in your work for the Lord, knowing that in Him our labor is not in vain. It doesn't matter if you think you've got five years remaining or five decades. It's not the amount of time left, but what you believe about what happens next that Paul says is to fuel how we live. We spent 2019 studying the complete victory of the Lamb over every foe, including the last enemy. So let 2020 be marked by our faithful endurance and our joyful service. Death has no sting for believers. Instead, it is the necessary passing from this life to the next, from perishable to imperishable, from mortal to immortality, from shame to glory, from weakness to power, from pain and disease to wholeness and joy, from seeing in a mirror dimly to seeing face to face and being made like him. And that is so much better than we can begin to imagine with our fallen, finite, clouded minds. If we believe, let us not grieve as those who have no hope. More than that, let us not live as those who have no hope. Let us not suffer as those who have no hope. Even let us not die as those who have no hope. But let's ask God to help us to reflect his good news by remaining steadfast in him and to finish well however long we have. Because for those in Christ, death has no sting. Let's pray together. And if the band could come. Lord, what good news you give us. And that you will one day will deal with every trouble of our reality. That in you, all the things that make us most anxious, all the things that we struggle with most now, 
our own sin, the effects of our sin, the sin of others, our own perishable mortality. All these things you've come to remedy. All these things you have victory over. All these things you will make right. You will make new. You will make better than we can have ever imagined. Lord, help us in the midst of the troubles of today to look to you and what you have promised forever. Give us courage and steadfastness. Give us joy as we serve, as we relate here and now, because we know there's more to the story. In you, these things are possible. In you, they will be reality. So help us to see. Help us to remember. Help us to look to you, we pray.